0: Writers often evoke the famous je, What Do I Know? of Michel de Montaigne, father of the literary essay. Montaigne was known for his deeply exploratory writing about the many overlapping and often conflicting aspects of selfhood. His essays in the 16th century laid the foundation for the genre by focusing on questions, some ephemeral, some perennial, about things such as disability, death, education, friendship, religion, and thumbs. Today, essayists continue to write from this ancient tradition, but... For a new century, the big topics in today's discourse about who we are include questions about gender, sexuality, race and ethnicity, citizenship, political affiliation, and more. Enter the inimitable Melissa Falabino. In her debut essay collection Tomboyland, author Melissa Falabino examines a vast array of intersecting and intersectional human experiences. These thoughtful essays explore Falabino's relationship to scores of personal identities, including her Midwestern roots, An obsession with tornadoes, the complexities of her gender presentation, a competitive roller derby spirit, an inclination toward kink and BDSM, an ambivalence about motherhood, and so, so, so much more. All coalescing to construct one cohesive portrait of self. Falavino's bold and often beautiful writing embodies the ways all of us make meaning of our lives and develop an understanding of ourselves in the world around us. Today on New Books in Literature, please join us as we sit down with Melissa Falavino to learn more about Tomboyland, available now from Topple Books. Melissa, thank you so much for being here with
1: us today. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here.
0: So the first essay in your collection, Tomboyland, is called The Finger of God. Um, The essay works to give the reader a sense of where you grew up in the Midwest so my first question is how you would characterize a place like Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. So what are some of the singular experiences specific to growing up there and um, maybe especially in the midst of tornadoes?
1: Yeah, um, I, I love that question. My hometown is a really um, kind of strange and interesting place. And that's something I didn't really appreciate, I think, when I was growing up there, Um I was born and raised there. I lived there for 18 years. My parents still live there. Um, It's in South Central Wisconsin, about half an hour outside of Madison. Um, And when I was growing up there, there were probably about 3000 people, I would say, um, and growing. It was once a farm town. So like, you know, surrounded by farmland. It's um, it served farmers, lots of feed mills and John Deere tractor um, implements and um, stuff like that. And so it was a, it was a real farm town and that's how it was founded. And then it kind of became this small town. Um, and now it's almost like a, a bedroom community for Madison. Um, uh, since I've been gone, I, you know, I left when I was 18. Um, and that was long ago. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> It's grown to like seven or 10,000 probably at this point. Um, but when I was growing up there, it was very small. It was like multi generational. People had lived there for generations. Everybody knew everybody. Um, everybody knew everybody's business. Um, and my family was not that way. Um, my mother grew up in uh, Wisconsin. Um, kind of not not far away Um, she came from a long line of um, farmers Um, but my father's from the east coast he's um, from New Jersey Um, he's from an Italian family Uh, so we had this Italian last name in a town of like uh, all sort of Norwegian and German um, multi-generational families so um, people were always like where are you from (laughs) and I was like here and they were like but where are you from you know um but it was a it was an interesting place um and when i say it's weird it has these like kind of funny mythological um t- characteristics um the thing i write about in finger of god is um about how it's known for trolls it's called the troll capital of the world this is the the town's nickname um and there are there is a woodworker who carves trolls into tree stumps all along the main streets. So if you drive through town, every, on every block, there's like a troll uh, doing something um, idiosyncratic. Uh, and so there's like a, there's like a, a farmer troll and there's a banker troll and there's a troll with a chicken on its head. And um, there's a, a troll playing an accordion and these have been around since the eighties. And like, some of them have rotted And he builds new trolls. Um, So uh, that's what the town is known for. It was also um, known for a mustard museum. Um, And that brought people to town uh, when I was a kid. Um, So it was kind of like little strange idiosyncratic place that was kind of on the map in Wisconsin because of these um, oddities. And then it's also part of um, this region in the state called the Driftless area, which is, um, I write about this in a different essay in the book, but it's a kind of geological anomaly, um, in the country. And it's a, it's a region that, um, uh, is composed of this, uh, this area in Wisconsin and then also parts of Illinois, uh, Minnesota and Iowa. Um, so there are these like, um, mounds essentially small mountains, um, and there's a, there's a range of those right outside of Mount Horeb uh, that separates Mount Horeb from the town of Barnabald. So I write about that in The Finger of God as well.
0: So this first essay ruminates pretty heavily on some of the speakers, so some of your uh, longest running interests. So one of them is an obsession with tornadoes, and yes. this is emphasized through um, an early fixation on the movie Twister and a girlhood crush on a local meteorologist named David George. Um, so I'm interested to hear how do obsessions like these inform, uh, what kind of person the speaker grows up to become?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, that's a great question. I feel like so much of writing that essay, The Finger of God, was about figuring this question out. Um, I, I, like developed this obsession with tornadoes when I was like eight or nine years old. And it just came on really suddenly. And it was just, I don't know, all consuming. And I write about this in the essay, like I read books and, you know, checked them out in the library and, and bought them from the Walden books in the mall, you know, and my mom and I would go and Uh, Then Twister came out when I was 13 and I was just like in love with this movie and watched it obsessively. We had it on VHS. uh, And it, during tornado season, which in Wisconsin is like March through August, you know, but but really sort of that late spring is kind of the high, the high part of the season. And we would get tornado warnings um, all the time and, it just became this like thing that I was ever vigilant about. And I was like the watchman in our, in our family. And I have a small family, it's just me and my parents. And, um, and I was just this like little kid who, uh, viewed herself as a sort of sentinel, uh, you know, guarding us against tornadoes. And, um, and then I became completely fixated on this meteorologist who was like a middle-aged, like not attractive portly man. Um, (laughs) who was just like, I don't know what it was, but I loved him. And um, so much so that my mom procured a signed glossy photo of him from the TV station in Madison um, and gave it to me as a gift. And I had it on my wall, like along with the boy band posters. Um, (laughs) So, and like Leonardo DiCaprio and like Jonathan Taylor Thomas and then David George. It's like, I don't know, 40 year old, like, portly dude um and i didn't know what it was about at the time but really in writing this essay it became so clear to me that it was about faith and religion and you know I, i grew up in a pretty religious um household the town was very religious i was a part of this youth group that was like you know had some questionable recruiting tactics um everybody was pretty like evangelical Uh, it informed a big part of like my understanding of the world, but I don't actually know if I ever believed in it. Um, and I think as I got older and sort of realized that I was not really a part of this faith or that I was losing it, I feel like I started understanding, you know, like the tenuousness of life. and the fragility of life and that nobody was protecting us, you know, in this way that I had been taught we were being protected. Um, And this all sort of aligns with the story of this tornado that destroyed this town right next to ours. Uh, It completely annihilated this um, much smaller town. Um, And there was this myth that we were told that um, the tornado destroyed this town and then it had hit these mounds the blue mounds that existed between the towns and then god lifted it up into the sky and spared mount horeb um and the name mount horeb actually comes from the torah It's, it's from deuteronomy it's um the mountain of god essentially it's mount sinai in the christian bible um you know so there's this sort of biblical implication of our town and this was a story that i had been told and that i believed and Um, so, so much of writing this essay was like deconstructing this myth and the, um, sort of understanding of faith and mythology and protection and safety. Um, and sort of, as I came of age, my, my loss of those things.
0: So I'm really glad that you brought up in your answer, um, the, the Barneveld tornado, because my next question concerns that exactly. so throughout the collection, you as a writer have such a keen sense of, of narrative balance uh, and c- concerning original reportage in addition to the the personal anecdotes, the the scenes mm-hmm. from youth. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us about what the interview process for the witnesses mm-hmm. of the Barneveld F5 tornado was like. Um, and how these interviews work to further inform the speaker's personal experiences of growing up in, in Mount Horeb with this myth.
1: Yeah. um, I love this question. Um, Basically like, you know, I I wrote a version of this essay um, that was published in Prairie Schooner in 2018, summer of 2018. And um, the, the version of the story that was published uh, was just my own. And it was my own sort of obsession with the story and with tornadoes and kind of a, you know, this grappling with faith and religion and myth. Um, and so when I sold the book and realized I wanted to include this essay in the book, I realized pretty quickly that in order to do that, I needed, if I was going to tell the story of this tornado that destroyed a town and killed people, um, you know, I would have I had to talk to the people who were there. Um, and so last summer in in um, May, late May, it was right right around the 35th anniversary of the tornado. I went back to Wisconsin and spent some time in Barneville and in Mount Horeb and interviewed people who had been there and whose lives had been affected by the tornado. And um, much of it centered around this one family. Um, so, you know, a woman um, whose young son was killed in the tornado um, and her mother-in-law. Um, and So I interviewed both of those people and then I interviewed a couple other folks. Um, and when I went into it, I wasn't really sure what I was going to use or, or how it would fit into the story. You know, I, I was a little afraid, like, okay, maybe this will become the story. This, this should be the the story. And maybe I can't combine these two narratives. You know Um, I had, I had this kind of like question um, would it be possible to kind of wed these two threads, my own story and the story of the people who lived through it. And so I just kind of spent a week talking to a bunch of people. And then, um, and then as I was, I went up into the woods to finish the book and, I was transcribing these interviews and thinking about these experiences I had with these people, you know, um, sitting in a diner, um, you know, one person I interviewed, um, owns a feed mill. So we were in his feed mill and it, it, that had been destroyed in the tornado. And, um, and I was just thinking about these scenes and thinking about their stories. And I just started transcribing the interviews and realized that their, Their stories were, were not only, you know, um, integral to telling the story of this tornado, but also really helped me figure out what I was trying to say about it. Um, you know, everybody that I talked to kept coming back to God, you know, unprovoked, they just kept coming back to sort of like God and religion. And I spent some time in the Barneville library and was doing research in their archives and looking at all these newspaper articles and, um, the tornado made the national news to you. And there were all these headlines that were like, you know, Arnold rises from the ashes. And like, there were all these like w- biblical allusions to the way that people spoke about this storm. And, um, and then when I talked to the woman who lost her son, who was about four years old when he died, she, I, I asked her specifically that question, like, you know, like, how do you feel about that narrative that's told about this? And, and she was just kind of point blank, like that wasn't my experience of it. You know, um, no one, no one kept me safe. No one protected me. Um, and, you know, I, and, and so that really stuck with me. And um, so I think that their stories really helped the piece come alive in a way and, and made it, um, mm-hmm. I hope uh, both more true, you know, um, and, and also took it beyond my own sort of second and third hand, um, understanding of this event and, and, um, kind of gave the story back to them.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the collection itself, um, has a tremendous sense of scope when to sort of pull back and when to focus in. And, um, so I want to talk, uh, about another essay in the collection called Tomboy, mm-hmm. um, which is more about the the speaker's relationship with her sexuality, with her gender expression. Um, so in this essay, uh, you cite a hesitancy to use the word queer to describe mm-hmm. your sexuality and gender identity, despite feeling uncomfortable with with binary labels such as cis and straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and this hesitancy is further complicated in later essays, such as Meat and Potatoes, which explores uh, the speaker's relationship to kink.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So what are some of the challenges inherent in navigating a culture that even sometimes in queer spaces often insists on on a binary spectrum?
1: Yeah, um, so many. <laughs> um, it's a question that I just I've been kind of obsessed with for a really long time. and. Um, You know, I, as I write in that essay in Tomboy, I I come from this place where, like, we don't talk about these things. And so I've never been super comfortable talking about it, even when I I started to understand that I wasn't straight, for instance. Like, I was like, okay, well, that's just something that I keep to myself, you know, Um, and um and then, you know, I, I kind of found this community, this queer community when I played roller derby in Madison. And, um, and it really was like the first time that I felt like I had a real community of people who saw me and understood me. Um, but even so, I was kind of existing in this space where I was like, well, I don't really know what I am, you know, and I started calling myself bisexual. Um, and that felt Fine, you know, like, but not I don't know i would always kind of made me uncomfortable, and you know then my friends that I was meeting through that community you know were calling themselves queer, and so I started like gingerly referring to myself as queer, but only in you know certain uh circles and you know never in mixed company and 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 I kind of knew that it was true on some level, but I didn't know really what it meant and and I think that what I, I started doing in this essay was just sort of interrogating that discomfort, and um, I'd like asking the question why Why does this make you uncomfortable? You know, is it is it that you really you know don't feel like it? It these words describe you um, fully, or is it because of you know internalized homophobia um, and you know, like what, what's happening that makes you feel all of this discomfort. Um, and so it's really, you know, I don't really have an answer, <laughs> but <laughs> the, the essay is a very long, um, kind of meditation on that question. And so it looks at, you know, the word bisexual and the word queer and gender queer, and, um, asks these questions about the body and about sexuality and, um, about existing in these spaces that are neither kind of here nor there. Um, and I think what really kicked it off, this idea, was that I was I was having a lot of experiences um, where I felt very sort of invisible within the community, within the queer community, um, because I had been in a long-term committed relationship with a man. And so... I was having these experiences where, you know, queer people that I was meeting in New York, I was feeling very um, self-conscious admitting that fact. And, um, and, you know, and I would meet new people and they would find out that I was dating a man, you know, a cis man. um, They were like, what? You know, like shocked, like super shocked. And, you know, um, and so much of that is because of the way I look and the way I present and like um, the nature of my the, my gender expression and i get it but it's it's it also started to become kind of maddening and um so in a sort of like mad burst i sat down and started you know asking these questions like what you know what does it mean like what do all of these things mean or, and how are they connected and then this element of of kind of where i come from came into it and it was like okay how are the what are these intersections between gender, I, gender, sexuality, and sort of where we come from? How do how do the places where we come from inform the ways that we think about our bodies and our identities? How do they complicate the way that we see ourselves? Can we ever actually see ourselves? Um, can anyone else ever see us? And. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I don't really have an answer. <laughs> I don't know if I came to any conclusions in the process of writing like a ten thousand word essay on this on this question, but yeah. uh, kind of I kind of leave it with a question, um, you know, because I think that's that's all we can do is keep asking questions.
0: Right. Well, I think this this next question might be a little bit frustrating to you. In that case, <laughs>
1: um, I'm here for it.
0: <laughs> yeah well, so um, so in Tomboyland, um as you mentioned there there is this gap between how uh you as the speaker perceives herself versus mm-hmm. how others see her how what what assumptions others make about her mm-hmm. based on uh the way that she looks or the way that she presents, right? to mm-hmm. use another terminology um so I'm curious what you think about some of the contradictions inherent in this dynamic. Uh, do you think that it's possible for us to perceive ourselves as we are to some extent? Um, and what are some of the ways you maybe especially as a writer try?
1: Hmm. Oh, I love that question. Um, you know, I was talking to a friend last night, actually, who's like, struggling with some, some similar kind of identity questions. And I said something that I I didn't really plan on saying. It just kind of came out. I was like, I don't know that we ever have any understanding of ourselves. Like, what does that mean? She had said something about living an authentic life. And I was like, I get that. I get that, that desire. And I get that, that thrust, you know, living your authentic self. But I was like, what does that even mean? And so I said this thing that was like, I don't know if that exists, you know? I don't know if, if, if the self is something that we can ever truly grasp or define. Um, and, and I think that that is what that essay, Tomboy, is really trying to explore. Like, what is, what is selfhood- um, there's a, there's a line in it that has really stuck with me. It was like, um, years ago now I was in a, an appointment with my therapist and she had said, I I was, I was talking to her about this question of like, I feel like I exist outside of the queer community, but I also don't feel like I belong in the straight community. And I don't, I don't know what that means. And I, I feel, and I said, I feel like I'm losing my identity. And she was like, what? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, you know, and then I just like, I just like, you know, badly tried to articulate what I meant. And she, she's amazing, my therapist, and she like takes no shit. And she like literally like held her hand up at me and she was like, like shook her head. And she was like, listen, you know, identity is not what other people think about you. It's how you think about yourself. And it seems like a very simple thing, but it like, it just kind of staggered me. And I was like, oh, right. (laughs) It seems so so simple. But then it kind of launched me into this, well, okay, so how do I see myself? And like, I remember these, these moments of like, trying to look at my body and, and like trying to figure out, you know, am I a woman? Am I non-binary? Am I genderqueer? Am I maybe trans? I don't know. And and like having this like at, at age like 35, I was having this like kind of crisis and um, kind of felt like I needed to define myself um, and then realized I couldn't and and was like, OK, well, sometimes I, I think of myself as a woman and sometimes I don't. And I guess that's fine, you know, um, which was a liberating feeling, but also kind of like further complicated the question. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think as a writer, what I'm trying to do, especially in this book, is just write into those questions and know that I probably won't come up with any answers. And if anything, I'm only offering more questions, you know, like I have these, these questions that keep me up at night. And, and so I just sort of start with this question, you know, what is, what is gender? What is sexuality? What, what is identity? How do they coexist? How do they complicate one another? Um, and, and then I just write into that question and yeah, usually what happens is I end up with more questions. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So in addition to, to questions of, um, gender, sexuality, um, how those intersect with one's identity. Place is also frequently um, considered in mm-hmm. this collection. Um, so, the speaker grew up in Wisconsin, and in the essay of a moth, she leaves for the first time to live in New York City. Mm-hmm. When she gets there, she finds that her apartment is infested with moths. So, moths have long carried um, a strong metaphorical symbolism in classic essaying. And the speaker even references Virginia Woolf's death of the moth in considering what the moths might mean in the context of, so at this point in her life, she's mourning a relationship. She's starting fresh in a new city. Um, So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those experiences and then also what, what endeared the moths to you because they're not exactly antagonistic.
1: (laughs) No, Uh, no, they kind of weirdly became my, my little companions. Um, yeah, it was an interesting experience, and, um, you know, I was living in this new place on my own after having been in this serious relationship for um, many years, and um, I came to New York to go to graduate school, um, and so I was writing a lot, and um, I was reading a lot of Virginia Wolf, which is um, my want, and, um, and I, I, I'm not, I'm, what happened first? I think, I think the moths actually happened first. So um, I moved into this apartment and there was this just massive moth infestation and um, they were in our pantry and they were getting into all of our food and they were just taking over. And at first it was like, okay, we have to do everything we can to get rid of these things. And my roommates and I were just like, you know, madly trying to get rid of them, having these like, you know, cleaning binges and using lots of very, um, caustic chemicals and like, you know, doing everything in our power to, to, to kill them. And they just like, would not go away. And, um, I had a bedroom off of the pantry and that's where the malls lived. And, um, and I just like, became very like Zen about their existence <laughs> at a certain point. I was like, okay these moths are just a part of my life and they would like fly in and out of my bedroom and I would hear them at night and I would keep my lamp on and they would like, you know, clamor around in the lampshade. And I was very lonely. Um, but I was kind of relishing my aloneness at the time. Um, so very sad, very alone, but also like there was this liberation I was feeling in being alone on my own for the first time in a long time. And, um, these moths just started like, I don't know, they just became my, my companions in a really weird way. And one day I was, I was cleaning my room or something and I found the carcass of one and I like picked it up and started looking at it and really inspecting it very closely. And I guess at that point I had already read Virginia Woolf's Death of the Moth and I was just thinking about her and her moth and, and this idea of um, moths, you know, sort of barreling headlong into flames and, you know, ostensibly killing themselves. Um, and I had experienced that, you know, once watching one sort of dive headlong into a candle by my bed. And um, so I don't know, I just started like meditating on this idea of aloneness and grief and um, aloneness and loneliness and the differences therein and then grief um, and then also intimacy um, and sort of the, the strange space of, of being in a very intimate relationship with somebody and then suddenly not. Um, and then this feeling of like, well, I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life, obviously, that's what, that's what I'm doing now. Um, that's how it's meant to be and that's that's fine and then um and then toward the end of the the piece I meet someone new and it's this like sudden and very surprising um new love and sort of I start thinking about like new intimacies and the decision to sort of share your your body and your life um and your space with other creatures and um yeah so I, I don't know if that answers the questions. I don't, you know, it's just, um, I just, I kind of fell in love with the moths, I think. And I still am <laughs> sort of in love with moths. I, I actually had one in my apartment last night. Uh, so yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful interlude. Um, <laughs> because the next question I have for you is, is more about grief, right? So in the beginning of the, of a moth essay, there's, more of a sense of grief and loneliness and then it shifts. Um, But throughout the collection as a whole, something that I picked up on um, is this question of the nature of Midwestern identity. So a -hmm. strong central investigation um, citing sort of an implicit connection between grief and that identity. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a quote that sticks with me. You wrote where I come from generations of farm families with little money and many mouths to feed We don't have time for the kind of trouble that dwells in the brain or in the heart. So could you tell us a little bit about how these two things inform one another and how this idea of, of how Midwesterners process or don't process grief informs your work?
1: Yeah. um, That's a great question. I, I feel like that, you know, even more than sort of these questions about gender and identity, um, which are, which I'm grappling with throughout the collection. I think I'm even more interested in this idea of, um, of, uh, the way that place informs identity and specifically that, um, Midwestern kind of, um, I don't want to say inability, but sort of, um, the way that we don't process things like grief um, we don't really even give them space to exist. You know, we don't, um, we don't really allow room for them. And when I say we, you know, I think what I mean is a, a specific, I think I mean less Midwestern and I think more, it's more a question of class. Um, so th- this is another question that I'm really kind of interrogating in this collection. Like, uh, I come from, you know, a sort of more working class blue collar, um, family and, you know, people with who traditionally had tons of kids and, um, a lot of work to do. And, um, you know, work is really the, the, the primary, um, motivator and, um, and when you're working on a farm or you're working in a factory, you know, both my grandparents grew up on farms. And then my, my grandfather worked um, at the GM plant in Janesville for many years, you know, most of his life. And um, it's the nature of this kind of work that is just like grueling and and super long hours. And, you know, my grandparents worked the second and third shift. And so like my mom took care of her, her siblings. She was the oldest of eight. Um, everybody's always working all the time, and um, there is historically, um, you know, it's not a place where people go to college. Um, I, I was the first in my immediate family to go to co- to, to graduate college, um, and and so this kind of like idea of spending time with our feelings. <laughs> was not something we learned how to do um it wasn't until I left that place and like someone recommended after I had like a total you know emotional breakdown that I was like maybe you should go to therapy and I was like no but no one goes to therapy like we don't do that and then I went to therapy and then and then realized like oh actually sort of like facing the things that we are grieving or that we're you know these like really emotionally difficult things that we have never faced is um, not just possible, but also necessary and like moving forward in our lives. And um, so, so yeah, there's this like idea of, I think in a couple of the essays in the book, I'm, I'm dealing with this idea of like intergenerational grief um, and, and sort of, what we carry and, um, specifically what women in in these kinds of families carry, um, and how that is passed down. Um, and like this question of carrying it on or sort of breaking the cycle. Um, and so I think that that question really, uh, informs much of my work. I'm working on another thing now that might become a book that is also about class and um, an identity and and I don't know I think that I'm just sort of obsessed with this idea of um, of the intersections of of grief, work um, and and identity I guess but really the, that the grief and work I don't know there's something there's something there that I'm I'm really fascinated by and still kind of struggling through. So for this next question, I want to pull back a little bit to um,
0: to ask about form. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the decision to house the experiences in Tomboyland, many of which are, are very personal, as a collection of essays rather than in a more traditional memoir form. So another way to phrase this question might be, what makes the essay a good form for investigating intersectionality and other sort of big picture questions about one's identity and self.
1: Yeah. Um, I just love the essay as a form. I am, I am in love with it and have been for a really long time. And like, I, I don't know, I just, you know, I took my first creative writing class in college and, um, my first creative nonfiction class. And like, I remember being like confronted with the essay for the first time. And I was like, holy shit, this is so excellent. And obviously what I want to do for the rest of my life. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Like, what is it about this form that just like, I don't know, it just like, it drives me and sometimes it drives me crazy. And I love that. Um, and I think some of it has to do with all the formal possibilities of the essay in, in, in and of itself, like, you know, that we don't have to rely on like traditional transitions or structure um, to sort of explore an idea or a question um, that there are all these possibilities that exist. Um, and that kind of took on its own life actually for me when I I first published that of a moth essay, um, in the literary magazine Diagram. And that was way back in like 2011, maybe. Um, and I just like, I discovered Diagram and I don't even remember how I discovered it, but I became obsessed with Diagram and, um, was like, I want my work to live in this place. And, um, and just loved the um experimentation that so many writers took um and the weirdness of it and the wildness of it Um, and so when I finally placed an essay an essay in it I was like okay I you know I can do this um and that just sort of jump-started something for me and I think I think that for this book it it was always going to be an essay collection you know I I never had any desire to write a memoir um and I think a lot of that is just because I never wanted to write a book about my own, my, my own life only, you know, I wanted it to explore other lives um, and other stories and other experiences that sort of circled around my own. um, And that could help me tell my own, but also sort of that branched out in these other directions um, and explored these other lives and stories and, and books, you know, like I, I, read a ton of books and, um, literature informs a lot of my own ideas too. So I wanted to be able to like, you know, um, use that literature in my work too. Um, so there's a lot of Virginia Woolf in this book. Um, and, um, so this idea of like using personal narrative and kind of literary and cultural analysis, and then integrating, um, more kind of reportage and interview was really exciting to me. Um, like I said earlier, like I didn't actually know how I was going to incorporate the interviews and the, and the more sort of cultural reportage parts of it into my own personal narrative, but I knew I wanted to. Um, so it was this really fun um, and exciting and often difficult challenge that I was like, uh, just very stoked to take on. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I, I just, I just love the essay and it, um, there's no other form that excites me as much as this one.
0: Yeah. And one of the really nice things about the essay is, uh, how directly one can engage with, with big picture concepts, right? Like big Mm -hmm. ideas. And, um, so to to talk about another essay in the collection called Switch Hitter. So this is one uh, about the speaker's experience playing various kinds of sports. So from softball to roller derby and uh, hockey, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a particularly contentious encounter when the speaker's a child with a boy on an opposing hockey team who the speaker actually attacks after he calls her a misogynistic slur, right? Yep. Um, so after this incident, uh, so you write of it. I kept quiet and I took the punishment the way I was taught to. I kept the boy's secret and I kept the shame of it. Um, So what I'm curious about here is what is the connection between uh, stoicism, secrecy, and Midwestern womanhood? So this might connect a little bit back to the question uh, I asked earlier about Midwestern grief. Uh, How did you navigate these things growing up in that environment?
1: Mm. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's like, again, that's another like big question that I, I find myself thinking about all the time. And and I think this essay switch hitter was really about that exact question. I, I just feel like you read it so perfectly, <laughs> um, like carrying secrets um and is just like such a part of that kind of culture of silence um I talk about stoicism this idea of stoicism a lot in the in the book like that is a word that's used all the time you know where I come from in the family I come from like oh he was stoic although they say stoic um which is <laughs> <just> like <a laughs> specifically upper midwestern way of saying it stoic um like it's a badge of honor, you know, like stoicism, this like silent, strong, uh, you know, it's very a masculine quality. Um, you know, we're supposed to sort of just like bury all the hard shit and be strong in the face of it and keep going to work. And like, you know, that's it. That's, that's what the sort of successful person does. And, um, so I grew up with this idea of stoicism, you know, hearing my mom, t- you know, use that word to describe my grandfather who was, I, I loved, but he was silent. You know, I, I, I didn't have very many conversations with him. Um, and this like silence that exists. Um, and that surrounded me when I was a kid, both sort of um, literally, you know, in spaces, like sometimes in family spaces where we would just sit in silence Um, and then also this sort of larger idea of silence of like, you know, we don't talk about the things that are hard. We don't talk about the like dark things that are going on in our lives, which of course leads to more problems, uh, that we then deal with for the rest of our lives. Um, and then also there's an intersection there with the sort of the secrecy of womanhood by which I mean, like, you know, we carry these secrets about our, Desires and our behaviors, and the things that boys and men say and do to us, and we accept them because that's what you know what we learn happens. That's boys being boys, you know, that's men being men, and we just like you know, internalize it and take it. And, um, and I think that, like, you know, that scene that I wrote about, I, I like, like. 13-year-old kid, you know, called me this slur on the ice, and I just, like, flipped out and went after him and just kind of beat the shit out of him and then got ejected from the game, uh, which, you know, everybody was like, whoa, what? You know, and I, and I, like, go back to that image a lot. Like, I had this, I was just this tiny ball of rage when I was a kid, and I didn't understand it then, and I didn't understand it until much later, and I knew it had something to do with, like, the anger inherent with being a girl and knowing what that meant and wanting so badly to be a boy and finding it so unfair, but also infuriating that I had to be a girl. And, um, it just enraged me. And I got in fights all the time. Like with boys, um, there's a, like, I think, I think there's a line somewhere um, in tomboy where I say like, I fought with the boys who called me girl and the girls who called me boy and, um, you know, I kind of just, like, was mad at everybody. Uh, And, you know, it wasn't until I was writing this piece uh, that was ostensibly about softball, you know, it was about growing up playing softball, um, that I realized it was also about, like, the way that we perform as we grow up as girls, that we perform for men and we work to um, please men and that everything we do sometimes is to, you know, get the attentions of men, because this is what we're taught we should be doing. And we're taught that that's what it means to be a woman, like getting a man, you know, getting the attention of a man. And, um, and then, sir, so, and then, and then I sort of, that led to, um, a, a, uh, a memory of being sexually assaulted in college, and that was something that like I had not reckoned with um, for for many many years, and I had certainly never told anybody about. Um, and so all of these things started coming together. This like rage that I felt when I was younger, um, this sort of, uh, you know. Um, question of of gender and sexuality and and sort of navigating that space and then the the secrets the secrets that we carry um and particularly the 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 secrets of grief and the secrets of men um the things that men do and say to us that we just take and carry um and sort of so the, the the essay sort of became uh in essence, like an exercise in blowing that up, <laughs> like saying all the shit aloud that I didn't want to say aloud. And that was far and away the hardest essay to write. I was terrified of that essay. Like, I'm still terrified of it. Like, there are th- there are parts of that essay that I, I think that that's probably the most personal one. Um, mm-hmm. And there are stories in that that, like, I know I haven't told people in my life, like, that my parents don't know yet. Um, they're going to find out and it feels at once like incredibly, like debilitatingly terrifying and liberating just to let these, let these stories go and Mm -hmm. put them into the world. So I no longer have to keep them by myself.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the collection as a whole, um, is, is never shy about jumping into contentious issues, right? Whether they're whether they're personal, um, whether they're political. And um, so the, the next essay in the collection is called uh, Gun Country. Mm-hmm. So in this piece, uh, I'll preface this by saying, so on the coasts, right, the East and the West Coast, there's, there's sort of this persistent stereotype that the beliefs of people who live in the Midwest, who live in this sort of dismissive phrase, flyover country, mm-hmm. um, are ignorant or backwards. And many of the essays in your collection work really hard to deconstruct and to refute these ideas. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So in this essay, in Gun Country, uh, you touch on the the sort of myriad ways that Wisconsinites in particular think about gun rights, which is a hot button issue, right? (laughs) So there's often really surprising, stereotype-breaking conversations that you're having with all kinds of people, including um, an uncle of yours. So as somebody who states that she has conflicting personal and familial relationship with guns, what was researching this essay like
1: for you? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Um, this one was tough. Um, and I, 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 throughout the process of writing this essay, I was like, are you really going to write about guns? Like, is this something that you're prepared to do? Um, and I just kept going. I was like, I guess so. I guess you're doing this. Um uh and yeah, I, I think what happened was, you know, I, I've always been pretty staunchly anti gun. Uh, even though I grew up in a family that like a lot of people hunted, um, and grew up in a place where everybody had guns. Um, it doesn't it I don't know when I was young, it didn't seem quite as ubiquitous as it is now. And part of that is the gun laws in Wisconsin. You know, there's concealed carry um, people carry guns all the time in bars and places where God knows I don't want guns to be ever. Um, and I find it terrifying and uh, enraging mostly. Um, but then this thing happened where, you know, after Trump was elected um, which obviously was horrendous and is still horrendous. Um, and I was like everybody else that I know, you know, my community and my friends, uh, was, you know, totally enraged and deeply depressed and just really angry. Um, and, but then I started like reading these mostly opinion pieces, but then also seeing people, like, post screeds on on Facebook and, like, on social media that were just, like, blaming Midwesterners um, and specifically calling, you know, Midwesterners idiots and that, like, you know, these people who are obsessed with their guns are just, like, are, like, are worthless and, you know, are, are just like, you know, the, the most like sort of derogatory things that you can say about people. And like, sometimes I agreed with it, you know? Um, but it started bothering me more and more. And I was like, okay, look like the truth, my own truth is that I hate guns, but I, I love a lot of people who have them and I couldn't reconcile that. Um, You know, for like the first two years after Trump was elected, I was like, oh yeah, maybe I'll cut ties with these people. And, um, and, but then I started thinking like, well, the more interesting way to approach this would be to talk to people whose viewpoints I don't agree with inherently, um, but people who I know will speak with me openly and candidly, uh, and know that I'm not trying to write something that will like, you know, take them down. Um so, so I you know, in this trip out to Wisconsin I talked to, yeah, family members, um, my partner's father who is a um was in the army and who's uh who's a gunsmith and you know owns guns now, and uh people who used to own guns and don't anymore, who got rid of them, um, you know, in the wake of mass violence and um, you know, um so I talked to a bunch of people who had guns, um, who still had guns, who, who who gave up their guns and, and really just tried to like, understand this mentality of gun ownership and how it, um, informed identity, um, and like what it meant, you know, to what it meant to them. Um, you know, and I had never had these conversations with people before. Um, I just sort of had made assumptions about what it what people who owned guns were like, even though I, I knew some of them, you know, pretty well. And um and then, you know, as I was writing the piece, because the whole book kept coming back to these questions of gender, I I kept thinking about the ways that um rage and anger and gender um, intersect. And so I started thinking about all these mass shootings and like the white men who were, you know, at who were committing them. And like this idea of rage and anger and what the difference is between rage and anger. Um, and you know, this, this idea that we expect rage from men and we don't from women. Um, and so I started like interrogating my own history of, um, anger and, and violence. Um, and, and, and the piece became about both gun ownership, uh, and fear and rage. Um, and also like what it means to be a woman in the world who has, you know, anger and fear and rage, but who, you know, doesn't carry guns. And, um, so yeah, the the research it was just like, yeah, I read a ton. Um, but really what was the most fruitful was talking to these people who who all came from very different sort of backgrounds and had very different relationships with guns. Um, uh, and that was really what kind of helped, helped the essay click for me.
0: So later in the book, um, in the essay Motherland, which is another essay about sort of a contentious issue mm-hmm. that comes up a lot. Um, you touch on the speaker's difficult decision to forgo traditional motherhood, um, exploring the nuanced joys and sadnesses inherent in that choice. So though this is sort of a personal decision, why do you think that so many people in our culture, perhaps especially in the context of the Midwest, um, view such a decision as radical?
1: Yeah. And it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, there's so much about this question that seems like it shouldn't be radical at this point, but uh, you know, far and away, the women that I know, um, you know, from from the town where I grew up, in my family, um, and you know, people I went to school with, you know, they all become mothers and they all have kids, and um, you know, a few a few people that I know from from that place, you know, don't don't have kids and but we are, we are the minority for sure. And, you know, it's interesting to me that there's still this sort of understanding that like, if you are a woman, um, you know, of a certain age and you still don't have children or you aren't married, like, like that's a weird thing. That's still strange. And, uh, people still kind of look at you with this bewildered, um, look on their face. Like, why, why, why not? You know? Um, and I don't really know why, you know, especially because even in a place where a lot of people say, you know, I, I, even I was raised, you know, my, my parents never pressured me to, to have children and, uh, to get married or have children, you know, um, I, as I mentioned before, my mom was the oldest of eight and she was kind of like, do what you want. Uh, and, and still sort of stays firm, which I'm super grateful for. Um, but I think that there's just still this very, um, specific cultural expectation that that's what you do when, you know, you're born into a female body, you, you know, use it to, uh, carry and have children and like, that's your goal. And that is sort of this like um, measure of success in womanhood uh, that still is very, very present um, where I, where I come from. And, um, and so, yeah, that, that, that piece really came about because I was, I was thinking about this question and was like, why, does this still feel like in the year of our Lord, 2020, why does it, why is this still an issue for so many people? Like, what is the problem, you know? And, um, and then also like, why do I feel so conflicted about it, you know? And so it's not just this like external cultural expectation, but the expectations that were born in me and that I still have. And like, you know, this, this idea that if I choose not to have children, that I am somehow less of a woman, or I am not doing the things that a, a normal woman does. And like, as someone who considers themselves, you know, pretty, pretty alternative, um, in most respects, like it's frustrating to have that feeling still like, and, and, you know, um, so a lot of the, a lot of the impetus to write this piece was about interrogating that internal question as much as it was about interrogating the external one. Um, And then like so many things in this book, it became about like intergenerational grief and Midwesternness and like the ways that we uh, deal or don't deal with um, our problems and then kind of pass them along uh, in future generations And like this idea of, um, severing that line, you know, like as we, Mm -hmm. uh, what if we just, what if we just severed this, this thing that for generations has been, you know, not without its joys, certainly, but also like carrying a lot of grief. Um, so it's complicated, (laughs) (laughs)
0: It is yeah. yeah well I mean a lot of a lot of the subjects in this book are complicated um, and that's one of the joys of reading it. So uh, th- there's so many essays we haven't touched on there's so many subjects we haven't talked about um, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time so I'll wrap it up with with this last question for you okay um, so what are you hoping that readers will come away from tomboyland understanding better so whether about the Midwest, intersectionality, um, liminal and or unspoken experiences?
1: Mm. Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think I just, I hope that, um, well, I hope that readers will learn something, um, and maybe experience a new perspective that they, um, haven't experienced before or, or see an experience that they, you know an experience that they have had represented maybe perhaps for the first time um you know i think that this word midwest and midwesterner and the idea of midwesternness is is super complicated um and there are all of these other facets that make it so complicated you know class race gender um and and I think that, you know, my motivation was to, to write into this idea of Midwesterness and, and hope that I can come away with, you know, new ideas. And if not new ideas, then just new questions, um, that, that might resonate with, with other people, um, you know, or that, that readers might learn something from, um, and, and even just like, you know, I, I have this idea of who this book is going to speak to, but I'm, but I'm really hopeful that, that it reaches people that it wouldn't necessarily inherently speak to. You know, that, that someone might read this book and, you know, if not have their mind changed, then at least feel a little more open to um, some of these questions in a way that they weren't before. Oh, wonderful thank you so much for your time this has been great thank you so much these were excellent questions and i had such a good time my name is
0: zoe bossier and you've been listening to an interview with melissa Fallavino, author of tomboyland on new books in literature a podcast channel on the new books network thanks for listening